Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. See you on the other side, episode 252. Today we talk the terror in the skies and an interview with filmmaker from Small Town Monsters, Seth Breedlove. Now, Seth is the creative powerhouse behind the Small Town Monsters documentary series. It's available on Amazon Prime, Vimeo, DVD. The newest release also stars my lovely and talented sister, our very own Allison Jornlin. Both Seth and Allison are joining us today to reveal the rest of the story behind Terror in the Skies, which is a documentary about Thunderbirds and flying humanoids over Illinois. Welcome, you crazy kids. Yay! Hurrah! (laughs) I'm excited to talk to you today, Seth, but we need to address the elephant in the room. Um, Right. As you guys are probably hearing are you holding an ice cream man by knife point in the background like what's going on in your background no i they 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 put this so they they built this clock or put this clock in in downtown wadsworth where i live and it's it sits on the square and it was like a gift from some sort of like small town commission or something and uh originally it's been here since i moved in in october but originally it was playing like maybe once every hour or so. I actually think it was more like every two to three hours because it, it, it definitely wasn't constant. And then like a week ago, I saw them down there tinkering with it. And I and I thought to myself, this could be a problem. And sure enough, like on Monday when I came back in, it was playing. So it's playing every 57 minutes and it plays anywhere from like two minutes to six minutes. And there's also like the 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 emergency departments are down here too so you'll hear a lot of like sirens going off and stuff outside of my office but i'm in i'm in like uh mayberry i'm essentially in mayberry and yet you would think i'm in la or or new york city like when i'm my day is full of listening to a clock playing music incessantly and people screaming at each other outside of my window yeah, and we were just discussing that off air, thinking that maybe it is some kind of disinformation plot, Seth. Seriously, mm-hmm. that yeah, you are getting CIA. way too close to the truth. Yeah, they got to get me out of this building. Right. right. And the only way they're going to do that is by driving you slowly insane. You know, it's also – it's funny you'd say that because the, there's – there, the the air conditioner, not to get too too inside baseball, but the air All conditioner right. in my office is the the control panel is outside of my office. So if I turn on the AC, it immediately gets to like below zero in here because the the temperature gauge isn't in this room. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, it can it can hit on average like. 80, 85 degrees in my office, even when it's relatively cool out. Like right now it's 65 outside and it's 78 in here. So 
I'm just constantly miserable, which is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's my life that's, anyway, that, but. That, that's what's going on. I mean, the man, the man is trying to keep you down, Seth. Yeah. That's great that's for art. Happened. Just ask Charles Bukowski. He was miserable for 30 years and yet he created beautiful poetry. Yeah. I'm a lot um, like, uh, a lot like Bukowski. Definitely. <laughs> I would say small town monsters and, and, uh, hot water music are very similar. Yeah. But the thing is, Seth, um, it is easier to make it uncomfortable for you to work for the CIA. Mm-hmm. If they wanted to make it uncomfortable for you to work, that's easier than just killing you. Sure. Right? Because sure. then it's because you can blame it, you can blame it on the town. Yeah, yeah you don't you realize just look that the town is a plan. I mean, if you complain, oh Seth, he's always complaining about the air conditioning and <laughs> the jingles right. on the clock. Yeah. And isn't he fussy? And uh, and no, they're really, you know, chipping away at your psyche. I know. And bit. for for like years, uh, for years, I've been claiming I was like the 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 sort of like neurotic uh, Woody Allen esque uh, character of uh, of of cryptozoology. <laughs> I probably should no longer use that analogy, honestly. But right. uh, yeah, it's getting. Too I mean, close to he's, he's extremely neurotic, anymore. and he married his stepdaughter. I was going to say, like the the uh, the controversies might put me in a in a bad light, but um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, people would, people will just believe I'm paranoid and uh, a whiner, which is probably true as well. <laughs> well, that, okay, so if you guys hear just a little bit of stuff in the background, um, that's just uh, the CIA trying to shut Seth up. But we're not going to let that happen today, um, because we're talking terror in the skies, and so. Why were I mean, why why the Thunderbirds, Seth? Why were Thunderbirds and flying cryptids? Why were they the next dimension in your search for monsters? How come you picked them next? Well, it is funny because originally our our eighth movie was going to be a documentary about Bill Gunnis, uh, the the serial killer. Um, and at some point last summer, I was uh, reading through something I cannot remember what, but it had to do with Mark Hall and his his, uh, research into Thunderbirds. And, uh, I, I don't know, I came across the Lawndale story, which I was familiar with, but I, I, I think that was where I really started to look toward Thunderbirds as maybe being our next sort of project. And then the more I looked into it, the more I thought, well, this doesn't have to solely revolve around Thunderbirds. Um, you know, there's any number of, of winged cryptid sightings in the state of Illinois. And, uh, so it's, it's sort of, blossomed from there into what it's become, which is, uh, I guess, sort of a, a look at the winged cryptid phenomenon as a whole uh, within the state of, of Illinois. But it was mostly, I, I wanted, to, I, I, I was drawn to it because of that Lawndale story. And then everything else kind of came into focus afterward, like the Alton sightings I was unfamiliar with, Piasaw I was unfamiliar with. So there was a lot of learning uh, during the making of this movie, which is, it's really enjoyable for me. A, a lot of what we cover has been covered uh, numerous times in other media. And in this case, uh, we were able to sort of dive into a topic that uh, I wasn't at all familiar with and educate myself on on the subject as a whole, um, which was for me, that was a, a, a sort of a drawing point for me. And let's let's recap that Lawndale, Illinois story and the, the story of Marlon Lowe in 1977, in case you guys uh, need a quick refresher from watching Terror in the Skies. I mean, that's a story where there's like a 10-year-old kid out playing, mm-hmm. and he gets lifted by a giant eagle and moved like 40 feet. Yeah, yeah. They said so, – so yeah, Marlon Lowe and, and two of his friends were playing in their uh, either front or backyard, um, and they – they see these two 
large birds flying down Kickapoo Creek, which runs directly behind their house. Um, the birds sort of come up over this uh, grove of trees, and one of them launches itself down toward um, toward the boys that are playing outside, picks up Marlin. Um, his mom is inside uh, when this happens with some friends. She sees him being carried across the yard, runs out of the house. Um, actually, I think at that point he was still struggling with a bird. I don't think he'd actually been picked up. Um, she sees him outside struggling with this bird. She runs out of the house. By then, he's being lifted into the air by this bird. The bird flies like 50 feet. Um, she runs uh, toward them screaming. Uh, I believe she may have tried to strike it with a broom. And at that point, the bird dropped Marlin uh, and took off over Kickapoo Creek and off into the sort of um, – Anyone that's been to Illinois knows that it's almost like looking at the ocean in some of those central Illinois locations. Like there's the the fields stretch off to the horizon and they fly off, you know, toward the toward the horizon. Um, the story was reported on by local paper. Uh, that story got picked up by the AP. Uh, Chicago paper started coming down and interviewing the Lowe family, and soon the story had sort of blossomed and it was all all across the country it ran you know in newspapers um sort of coast to coast my parents are actually sort of remember that story being in the papers even here in ohio and i've talked to people from all over the country who remember that um story uh, you know on the on the front page of newspapers and it, which makes it sort of your prototypical um, small town monsters case because that's that's typically the track these things follow. You know, there's there's an inciting incident. The inciting incident gets picked up by some sort of major media, and then all of a sudden, uh, the traditional flap sort of bursts into into life, and all of a sudden, you've got sightings being reported from all around the area. And that's exactly what happened in Lawndale in '77. You had the the low incident uh, sort of hit hit the, the, the gong as it were. And all of a sudden you've got people from all over, um, central Illinois reporting, seeing these two large birds that sort of resembled Andean condors. Okay. So instead of eagles, they're more like the, the idea of the, the condor. When you think that the beaks are different with the condor, Mm -hmm. almost they're a little bit more like a vulture. Yeah. And they, they even recounted seeing the white, the white, uh, plumage around the neck, um, you know, which is an Andean condor. Right. Um, description. So yeah, there was, there was, there were, and, and I actually talked to someone who, last night who was, who was asking about uh, the Territorn and why people believe the Territorn might've been, you know, some sort of, uh, why people believe Thunderbird reports might be chalked up to like some sort of existing remnant of, of Territorns. And, and that would actually play into that because the, the Territorn was sort of a, a an ancient condor um, and might've had that that same sort of plumage around the neck that, that like the Andean condor does. So potentially you might have some sort of territory existing in Illinois and, and trying to capture Marlon Lowe. Well, how big can condors get? I mean, they can get pretty big, but big enough to, uh, I mean, was Marlon Lowe, I mean, obviously he probably wasn't the biggest kid in his class, mm-hmm. but was he uh, tiny or small or, or small for his age? I, I believe they said 70 pounds or 77 pounds. And, and the way it works with birds is they, they can only pick up to about half their body weight. Um, sometimes, you know, larger birds can pick up two thirds their body weight, but either way, you would have been dealing with a, a bird that was over 140 pounds, which is 
massive, you know, for a bird. Um, so yeah, the, the, the idea of it being an existing bird to me anyway, has always been kind of, kind of absurd. I just don't, I don't see that sort of, uh, and, and we've had people posit that maybe it was like a golden eagle or something like that on the, on, on the Facebook page. So there's, that's the story that, that, you know, really gets the mind, your mind working as far as like what the various theories might be to explain what happened to the low family. Cause there's, there's only so many things that could be. Um, and, and I think that's why so many, uh, Lawndale locals, uh, went with ridiculing the family and sort of making them out to be drunks who had sort of imagined the entire event. And, and, and that still sort of continues even today. Like when we were, when we were in Lawndale, we met up with a, a, a local from Lawndale and that was the first thing he said to us was that the family had been drinking and just imagined the entire event. And that's just, it's just so incredibly sad to me that we, we have these borders of reality that we guard um, so zealously and, you know, something very real could be going on there, but yet, you know, people want to explain it away. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think with something like this, though, it's th- this at least appears realistic. Like there might be a giant bird. Like that comes in the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Is that because they alert people? They're scared about it. They tell people. They stand by their story. They're like, "No, man, the giant bird came in, grabbed my kid, uh, and I had to beat it down with a broom." And I think when people ridicule people for stories that are at least somewhat in the realm of possibility, then it makes it so when you have a more outrageous story, um, then if you ridicule the small stuff, even the stuff that's somewhat believable, then how are we ever going to get to trying to understand the bigger stuff? Right. Um, the stuff that exists on a mythical level sure. beyond what exists on the physical level. Like a, like a giant condor to me is totally believable because I've seen giant people Alton, Illinois is featured in this, and we'll get to Alton in a second, but Alton, Illinois is featured for a long time in Terror in the Skies. Mm-hmm. And Alton, Illinois is the home of the tallest man that ever existed. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, Robert Ludlow. Yeah. And I mean, he wasn't just kind of tall. He wasn't just Yao Ming tall. And Yao Ming's a big, mm-hmm. like he, I mean, he was like eight foot 11. So he's like two foot taller than anyone, maybe not two feet taller, but like a foot and a half taller than anyone else around. So, um, is so there some- Alton, home of giant men and giant, giant birds. Birds, right. Home of the mutants. If I was their high school football team, whatever, I'd be like, we should call ourselves the mutants. That's the mascot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we actually mentioned that with Alton at the, at the very end of the movie. There's a line about like uh, Alton being a home to like, mythical musicians giant men and and some I, I forget what the line is but I, I i actually am kind of in agreement with you about the like there there are cases of gigantism all throughout nature so to 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 think that especially something like the alton flap which was you know in 1948 there were all these sightings around alton and uh, the sister city of st louis of of what was being called big bird which is hilarious now uh, if you if you really right. just imagine people seeing Big Bird from Sesame Street flying outside their window or something, but um, right, imagine if Big Bird was the cryptid and not Snuffleupagus, right? And <laughs> because Sesame Street had its own cryptid for twenty years, yeah. Um, but yeah, so there were all these sightings of this giant bird near Alton, and, and honestly, if 
if maybe if people in in Lawndale had done some of their research, they would have been less quick to sort of critique the the low family because there there was a history of this in in the state of Illinois uh, as far back as the forties and and in the forties there was a certain amount of ridicule associated with those big bird sightings, but it wasn't anything like the lows faced, you know, in, in the seventies. And I think some of that has to do with like the first sighting of big bird in Alton, Illinois in the forties was, was by an air force colonel. So it wasn't, it wasn't immediately happening to, you know, small town rural families um, who, who might be easily dismissed. It was, it was happening to very, um, I guess, sort of "quote unquote" legitimate local citizenry, and and then you had less of that ridicule factor in the '40s, or maybe in the '40s, people were just slower to make fun of people for seeing something unusual. But yeah, these these sightings broke out for about two weeks. Um, it's actually longer than two weeks. We say two weeks, in, or I think Lauren actually says two weeks in the film, but the Alton flap seemed to go on for about a month. It, it stretched into May. Uh, and started in in early April and stretched well into May, as as far as like the newspaper reports I found. Um, so you had all these reports of what seemed to be sort of a giant gray or black uh, bird flying flying around the area. And there's a number of these reports, and we have names on file, um, especially in the newspaper articles about about the story. You've got all the the different names of, of various eyewitnesses um, and what they were seeing seemed to be again, like not mundane, but, a, but a, an explainable, um, an explainable odd event, you know, like you could, you could definitely see this being some sort of large uh, abnormally large, but known bird um, until you get to some of the stranger reports. There, there was a sighting that took place in St. Louis once the people were driving through the city and they actually saw the giant bird flying over over the city and it seemed to be glowing uh, or self-illuminated from the inside, which is very strange. Um, oh, man. Yeah, there's, there's a few of those reports um, from Alton in the forties. And, and, you know, there's, there's not a lot to connect the Alton flap with what happened in Lawndale because the, the, the descriptions of the bird don't really line up. And there was a solitary bird in the forties, whereas Lawndale, it was almost always all those reports, not all of them, but a large number of those reports were of two of these large condor looking birds. Right. Well, um, and I have to, I have to interject here Mm -hmm. that, I was surprised in, you know, my newspaper research that just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm so sorry, Seth, that I didn't find it sooner, but yeah, just a couple of weeks ago found another uh, attack of a large bird uh, on a child on account um, going back to 1909 from St. Charles, Illinois, which is uh, a little as more as northerly, uh, north northern Illinois as opposed to Alton, uh, Illinois. Mm-hmm. But um, the similarities in the the story of you know the Martin Lowe attack and the St. Charles, Illinois um, eagle attack. They call it eagle, but if I give you some of the details, it it seems uh, it seems that. It may have not have been an eagle unless it was an eagle with, with uh, gigantism. Yeah, I've been sharing that story uh, on interviews and giving you credit for sending that to me. I mean, like we're all we always come across this stuff after the fact. I know, right? right? Um, but but that 
that's still such a cool thing. And then you found another one, right? Yeah. Well, um, I've, I've been looking for more information about the that particular St. Charles attack. And then so I've just, you know, now I have a little bit more time. So I'm, I'm looking through and finding um, just eagle attacks, uh, you know, all over the Midwest. <laughs> and there was, um, in 1909, there seemed to be an epidemic of attacks uh, around the Midwest with Again, you know, often pairs of birds, which is interesting, mm-hmm. being spotted. And then one, you know, takes an interest in a child. And um, then, you know, the the capture of the child is narrow, narrowly averted uh, mm-hmm. by uh, standers by and parents and whatnot. But there, there are quite a few stories like that. There's one that I just found last night um, from Pennsylvania and then another one um, nearby that region as well um, of a little girl who was was captured um, and then uh, finally dropped upon a nearby uh, roof of an outbuilding near the barn uh, that her family owned. So just imagine that if you have a little kid at home, you know, a little kid playing in the yard, picked up by some large bird, and, you know, you almost lose the child, and then you have to retrieve them from a nearby roof. I mean... (laughs) Well, what I what I love about these, uh, first of all, the, the St. Charles one is written so well. This article from 1909, because like fighting desperately for two hours with a monster eagle to keep his baby from the menacing talons of the great bird, Peter Johnson, a farmer, with the aid of neighbors, finally captured the king of the air. Like it just it just goes into it with um, because the kid turned out all right, 35 pounds, which is I have a, a two and a half year old, and she's about 36 pounds right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And and by Johnson boy, a sturdy child of three years. I don't know if I'd call my daughter sturdy, but <laughs> all right. But these guys, he was playing on his father's farm near St. Charles the other morning when the eagle was first observed. So this gigantic eagle, uh, it says like with a wind, winds. Um, oh, a yeah. Wind Let's hold up like, on the wingspan for a second. Sure. That's going to be a key point. Okay. But then they even take it. They like they draw a picture. Like it's the New York, you know, how I'm sorry, like the Wall Street Journal had, like draws the pictures <laughs> instead of taking it. Like they have a picture drawing of like the eagle holding the baby and the father like beating him with a stick. Um, right. And then it even finishes up saying like how like the the boy is none the worse for wear for his experience and he takes great delight in watching the imprisoned bird. Right. And if we take if we take what you were saying, Seth, I did not know that uh, like birds could only carry like half of their weight, I think you said. And so if we take the weight there, you know, 35 pounds and and uh, multiply it by two, you know, wow. I mean. A seventy-pound bird. <laughs> yeah, you can feed. You could feed like a whole platoon at Thanksgiving or whatever with yeah, that guy. Yeah, I mean, on occasion. So, so what? There, I'm going off of. So, so there's a. Uh, we do an event every year at uh, Park here in Ohio, and their wildlife officer is actually the person that relayed that to me. And they said, it, on rare occasions, a bird will lift can lift up to two thirds its body weight. So sometimes it can go, it can stretch itself to that point. But um, yeah, I guess half is like the max that, that most birds will max out at. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. then you, then you have to like multiply that. And when you start really looking at what the actual size of these birds would be, it gets a little ridiculous. 
Yeah, and when when I've been finding, uh, when I've been finding these other eagle attacks, um, the wingspan, um, and and the size of the bird is more within the realm of possibility. But this story from St. Charles is really of interest to me because, you know, they, they put a lot of detail into the story, but, you know, although the farmer is able to get the kid away, he wants to keep the bird because the bird is of such extraordinary size. And then he involves neighbors in helping him capture the the bird which oh, they pin, yeah which they pin between two pitchforks and the <laughs> it's stated that they they want scientists to look into this and they want to donate the still living bird to a zoological park mm-hmm. now um these other eagle attacks i was mentioning um they all report the the wingspan if possible, like if if the bird, um, because in a lot of these cases, cases, the bird is captured or killed in the end, and then they measure it, and we're talking five, six, seven feet wingspan, which, you know, eagles usually top out at about six feet or, you know, five and change, um, but... In this uh, article from St. Charles, they say that the from wingtip to wingtip, it was the wingspan was twelve feet. And to me, what eagle is twelve feet? Well, <laughs> I the, mean, one, the ones from the Lord of the Rings, yeah, and the I Hobbit. Mean, Those are the ones that are twelve feet. So the largest living bird right now is a wandering albatross, which, which can get a wingspan of 12 feet, but, uh, you know, the albatross isn't, um, isn't picking up kids as far as we know. Uh, but the idea that a bird could get to that size, I mean, it's like I said, there's a living bird right now with that wingspan, but, and, and we know there's gigantism, but again, it, it's something extraordinary, but maybe not something unprecedented. So the problem with with maligning people like the you know the low the low family is is when when you look into these accounts, sometimes you'll find these compelling hor- uh, historical precedents uh, that are very similar to what is being reported, you know, decades and decades later. And the problem is everybody's dead. Nobody's looking at the newspaper archives. Nobody knows that such things have happened before. Sure, sure. And yeah, and and with something like the state of Illinois in general, like there, I, I was asked yesterday, like why Terror in the Skies was focused uh, strictly on Illinois instead of, you know, the rest of the country and other states in the country that also feature large bird reports. I mean, PA, PA like you mentioned, Pennsylvania, there, there's a massive number of, of Thunderbird sure. reports from Pennsylvania and, and like pterodactyl type creature reports as well. Mm-hmm. Like we've, we've featured one of those in, in Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. And that was like one of many that I've been told about. So, um, so those sightings are common in other states, but, but Illinois has a connection to, 
um, as Lauren would call it, winged weirdies in general, going all the way back to the Piasaw legends, um, you know, and, and, and just a connection with known birds in general. Like when we were, when we were driving to Louisiana, Missouri to film Momo, uh, we went through a completely different section of the state that we hadn't been to, which was like the Western edge of Illinois. And I hadn't actually been to that part of Illinois ever. And we drove through probably three or four different, uh, like bird sanctuary areas, um, national wildlife refuge, uh, places or state wildlife refuges. And they all featured like illustrations or carvings of eagles, um, prominently on the signage, which I thought was, was Mm kind of cool given Illinois connection to, to winged cryptids as well. Um, but it makes sense that that stuff is so prominent in the state in general, because the state is such a, especially when you get down into that Southern edge with the, like Alton area, those bluffs are so like welcoming to, to large birds, especially eagles. I think that's why you have so many eagles hanging out in, in Alton, Illinois, that if there is some sort of large uh, bird, it would make sense that it would, it would be hanging out, you know, there because there's, there's any number of caves, there's, there's places it could nest or hide that would be welcoming for something like that. Well, what I love too, is that you even mentioned like, like one of the, uh, you know, one of the people who who you interview mentions like Illinois is huge. You know, like it, it's way bigger than you think it's going to be when you're driving through it. And it, you know, cause you think Illinois, oh yeah, Chicago's big and it's got, you know, Springfield's the capital and stuff, but there's, you know, four hours of like flat land, mm-hmm. like in between. Yeah. And you know, the re- the reason you can see so many damn birds is because uh, you, you can see out in flat land forever. Yeah. And you know, and I've, I've performed um, in, in various dumps all over the state of our friends to the <laughs> South in Illinois and, you know, driven through like the super rural areas and everything. And, you know, we think about, uh, you know, Chicago being the third most populous city in the United States, but then you have the tiniest towns, Paw Paw, and, you know, stuff in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of places uh, for these birds to hide. And it's funny too, because in Illinois, you have the very, you know, you got the, the Chicago accent, you know, the bears and stuff like that. And then two hours away, all of a sudden, you feel like you're in deliverance. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it changes quickly. And I, I think, um, I really like that you brought out the fact that this state is number one, it's huge. And Number two, there's there's tons of rural areas yeah. where these creatures could be hiding. Sure, and and actually, the, the this is probably the movie we've made that is the most um, centered around the geography of the location, um, and and a lot of that was by accident. Like there was no, we didn't go into Terror in the Skies planning on on sort of separating the stories by by sections of the state. Um, that was that was just something that that we came up with or I came up with during the editing of it. Um, but it is, it's almost like three States in one, cause you've got the really, uh, sw- swampy, strangely forested Northern section of the state that's broken up by these massive cities. And then mm-hmm. you've got, cause you've got three very large cities in, in Northern Illinois. And then you've got the central Illinois, which is flat as a pancake, um, with, with fields stretching off to the horizon. And then Southern Illinois is like, almost like, like that West, what shocked me was Troy Taylor has a line about like how there, there are mountains in Illinois. And I kind of laughed at it cause I'd been in Illinois and I was like, I don't, 
I don't see that. What are you talking about? Yeah. But when we went to Western, Southwestern Illinois, when we were going down to Missouri, I was shocked because there, there legitimately are like these huge, I mean, here, even here in Ohio, we'd call them foothills, but, but they're very large hills that are verging on mountainous. So there's the entrance to the Ozarks. I mean, when you're getting there. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just the, the change in terrain is so interesting. And the fact that you've got the three various types of, of flaps or three various flaps coming and each of them happens to be taking place in, in each of the different sections of the state. It just made sense to sense to kind of like separate the story into those, uh, three sort of sections, and I was really, I was really happy that we were able to show like the varying sort of terrain of the state. I mean, one thing I can say about the film, like once you come away from it, is um, I think it gives a really great sense of that state and 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 how the terrain, you know, uh, how the terrain varies. It makes you want to visit Illinois, and for that reason alone, you should be given an Academy Award. <laughs> Because that is movie magic, my friends. Yeah, well, I just thought, you know, yes, the landscapes, you know, the cinematography in in terms of, you know, giving you a sense of, you know, Chicago or, you know, the rolling rural uh, landscapes in other parts of the state. I mean, it's really beautiful and compelling. So. uh, I I just think it's it's uh, incredibly shot in that way. Yeah, Zach. Zach and Santino deserve like the lion's share of the credit. The only cinematography I really had anything to do on this was uh, drone. Like I, I did, I did all the drone footage. For, well, not all of it, but uh, a large part of the drone footage was mine. Um, but yeah, Zach uh, and Santino did a really fantastic job. And I think we were kind of looking for a break from the the bleak sort of. Uh, dark cinematography of like Bray Road Beast, which was the movie we made prior to this. Um, and, and this offered us like an opportunity to do something that wasn't steeped in horror mythology or like stylized sort of horror, like we had, had done with Bray Road Beast. I mean, I, it's funny for a movie called Terror in the Skies. I don't think there's a lot in this movie that is, is scary um, Unless you're Marlon Lowe. Yeah, well, that's the only thing. My wife says it's like our most terrifying movie because she, we have a we have a two year old, and um, she, so she she's of the opinion that this is our scariest movie. But it was never a sort sturdy of sturdy two year. Yeah, a, st- a very sturdy two year old boy. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it was never envisioned as as being like a, let's let's really scare the audience. You know, like sometimes with with Bray Road, we really were able to push that side of things like the the stylistic sort of horror that we we inserted into Bray Road Beast and this one I just never I just never saw it that way and and like strangely enough like during the Zach and I the way Zach and I work is like before we make a movie we spend a lot of time texting back and forth and it's usually just like images for movies we like um you know talking about like the way the look of the movie is going to be and um with this one I kept talking about Spielberg, but other than a, a couple stills from Close Encounters, I, I mostly sent Zach stills from the, the movie North by Northwest by Hitchcock. Oh, sure. Uh, and, and it's funny because like North by Northwest is not set in the Midwest and it's uh, it's not really a Midwest movie. But um, 
Yeah, that was. But it does have that. I mean, it's got, it's the, got the cornfield, the, yeah. the plane, cha- the, you know, right. the uh, the biplane over the cornfield, yeah. and then also, I mean, it's set. I mean, the the climax is set on Mount Rushmore, right? But when you're talking about Spielberg, I'm thinking about that shot in front of the Piazza Bird, mm-hmm. and that had to be obviously done with the drone. But I thought you were going to take off Troy Taylor's head with the drone. With you know, it came down, and, and so what we're talking about is there's a shot in the movie. Um, there's a bluff in Alton, Illinois that shows this legendary Piazza bird. And we're going to we'll talk yeah, more about that in a Piazza second. The Piazza bird. Pi- we'll, I'm sorry. We'll uh, the pizza lot, bird. I don't know about. what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. The pizza and, bird. <laughs> so the pizza, thing is- we love pizza. And uh, uh, the Piazza bird, they have a, a mural, uh, uh, you know, a mural of the Piazza bird on this, on this beautiful bluff in Alton, Illinois. And Troy Taylor, who we're going to see next week at uh, the American Hauntings Convention in Alton, he- uh, um, he's standing in front of it, and then you see the drone like come in flying, and then down like you know towards the parking lot towards Troy, and it's a great you know it, it, that's a great Steven Spielberg style shot you know without the crane and things like that. And so, did you handle that one? I, I did. the The trick in that scene is it's actually reversed. Um, I oh. I started in front of Troy and pulled away. Um, and I think in the movie, it, it actually comes toward him in, in reality. I, I did it in reverse. I just pulled it away from it. Okay. That's great. Okay. So that's why you weren't going to take his head off. No, I wasn't, I wasn't going to Damn, he's like, like Troy duck. Yeah, no, no, I, I flew it away. And yeah, I mean, there, there just isn't, there isn't a lot. I think the final scenes with the sun setting and the abandoned house and all that stuff that, that might have a little bit of a Spielberg vibe, but at the end of the day, the only part of the movie that I can directly point to and say, this might've had some. Spielberg homage going on would be the opening with the little boy. Like I, th- I feel like that scene is is very much kind of a, a maybe a little Spielberg esque in the way it was shot. Um, sure, but yeah, the in- innocence of childhood juxtaposed against great beasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so let's talk a little bit about the Piasaw bird because we already discussed. You know, like Lauren Coleman is a very. Um, you know, he's cryptozoology in the old school. Like this, this is just an animal we haven't discovered. This is just a, a bird with gigantism. Uh, and I love that about him. I love the old school mm-hmm. uh, 1970s style cryptozoologists who are like, well, we're just, we're just dealing with animals we haven't discovered yet. Sure. The Piazza bird seems to, that goes into more of the mythology of the people that live in the area at the time. So let's do a, uh, I know Allison's got some points on it. So let's do a quick recap of the Piazza bird uh, for people who maybe watched the movie or maybe haven't watched the movie in a couple of weeks. Uh, and then talk a little bit about the next part about it. Yeah. I mean the, and Allison can probably set me straight on this, but the, the thing about the Piazza that I'm a little, still, still a little confused about. God, I can't say it right to save my life. Can I? It's okay. I, I still, <laughs> I still mess it up. Um, pizza. Pizza bird. The pizza bird. But the, uh, yeah, the pizza bird was, you know, it, I'm, I'm confused about the backstory on it because what I can't seem to get a read on is, is whether or not this is actually a native American legend, or if this is a white man legend that was later attributed to the, to the native Americans. So, yeah. so like, I got the truth bomb for you right here. Okay. Yeah. Lay it out. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I, I love when I am researching and I find things that totally turn me around from what I was thinking. If if the world turns upside down, you know, I know that, hey, I've done something right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was the case, you know, I was happy to find that historical precedent that, you know, went 
you know, with the Marlon Lowe case. Mm-hmm. But then um, this Piasaw thing went the opposite way on me uh, in that. So we've been going to Alton for years because of Troy Taylor and his conferences there mm-hmm. and, you know, the haunted history of the area. Sure. And so we always go and make a, a pilgrimage out to the bluff there to see this beautiful rock painting mm-hmm. of this winged beast of tremendous size. And so I, for a while, just, you know, took it at face value, which is, you know, there's this, there's this story by a, a very imaginative, you know, English professor um, about uh, Piasa, meaning the bird that devours men. Mm-hmm. And the derivation of the word, I mean, he's, he completely just made that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the story, um, as it goes, is that there was this huge bird that was killing people in a, in a, a local tribe uh, from the Lionai Confederacy. And the chief came upon this idea that um, he would use himself as bait. And then the Piasa would come out of the sky and all these warriors came out of the woods with um, poison arrows. And, and that's how they bested the beast and, you know, finally brought its reign of terror mm-hmm. to an end. Yeah. So it it's, sounds great, sure. the, the story. And, you know, the beast, uh, as it appears in this rock painting, is massive and looks intimidating. But it's almost like the, the winged bulls from Assyria is what I was thinking of. Like, you know, yeah. how the, the ancient Assyrians yeah. have, have the winged bulls that you could see at the Oriental Institute in Chicago. Yeah. That's totally what it reminded me of the Piasa beast. There's another Illinois connection, even though it's, you know, Chicago, Chicago taking the stuff from 3,000 miles away. Right. So uh, then I, you know, like when I looked deeper into it, I was really surprised that, you know, hey, this story doesn't really hold water. It looks like something that you were saying, Seth, like um, it's it's something that a white man made up mm-hmm. and was like latched on to people as this is the Native American history. But um, and and the the uh, rock art that is there is just a reproduction. That's, it's the it's a third generation reproduction. It's not even yes. like a reproduction second generation. This is the third time that's been put on on the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing there there's like a weird so so I do this podcast Monsteropolis with my buddy uh, Mark Matsky and Mark is a voracious reader and he actually discovered this book about um, I believe it's it's either the Japanese or Chinese. I th- for some reason, I'm thinking it's Japanese, even though Chinese makes more sense to me. But he he has this book that he found about, um, like the and it, it basically how there were the, these these. Um, maybe I'll just go with Chinese because it just makes more sense in my head now. Sure. Um, we can link to it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, but so, but, so that that will end the controversy. Well, essentially, they're trying to to the book is trying to insinuate that the Piasaw bird was actually created by these ancient Chinese pilgrims who somehow found the Americas. Oh yeah, and painted it. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I hadn't. I thought it was fascinating um, that they painted it on the side of the bluff, and that's why it's there. 
Okay, well, that connects into like a whole nother podcast that we should do sometime, which is about the dif- the, the diffusionist history mm-hmm. of the Americas. I thought it was and, the Lost Tribe of Israel that did it. Right. See, that's the other thing. You know, if it's not Chinese or Phoenician sure. or Egyptian, it's the last tribe of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. It's obviously Do- the Polacks. Right. So, so here's the thing. There, there um, are all these stories, uh, and a lot of them are in the Midwestern area, mm-hmm. of, of these earthworks and other, you know, petroglyphs and other things, which uh, the white people, unfortunately, uh, the Europeans take the position that, oh, Native people couldn't have done this. So they find... Uh, alternative uh, explanations, and it's um, generally by um, by anthropologists called uh, diffusionist theories that you know these um, Westerners essentially came, um, you know, from Europe to the New World, and then you know they're really the ones responsible for like Cahokia or um, you know these tremendous earthworks sure. like the serpent mound in ohio yeah we like just that. yeah we just did a show about that stuff like the the uh because there's this there's there's some sort of mound in southern ohio where they're they've they've claimed to have found like hebrew tablets yeah. on these things which as which as a as a um as a as a having the jewish blood in me that i do i i'm totally okay with that um but i see yeah i see what i see what you mean i've actually never heard that term for it Right, it's called diffusionism. Interesting. I mean, now, basically, it's, um, basically, it's a way to dehumanize right. another population that you're taking exactly. something from. It's like when they said that, well, blacks are good at singing, but they're never going to be good at writing. Sure. So right. They, they they're happy. They're the happy credit. with what they have. They take away the credit. And I, I'm going to read. See, this is the thing that that um, turned it around for me. And I have some prior knowledge that I'm going to share too, uh, because I taught for 13 years at an intertribal school. Mm -hmm. And the way the Thunderbird is seen in Midwestern native cultures is very different than, uh, let's say, the Mothman, which um, confers this this air of foreboding and evil. Um, It's like the opposite response uh, to the Thunderbird in at least uh, the cultures that I know of in the Midwest, the Menominee, the Ojibwe, way, uh, the Oneida even that, um, originally came from New York. Um, they have a very different understanding of the Thunderbird, but let's get into the, um, the Piasa for just a moment here. So, um, on the historical marker, when you go to the, uh, Piasa park, uh, you'll, you'll see, uh, information about when in the 1600s, father Jacques Marquette, came to visit and and survey the area. So he's the one who discovered um, these, uh, what were probably petroglyphs um, on the side of bluffs, you know, not, not where, um, not where the Piasa is depicted right now, but, you know, in the area, let's say. So he came upon this huge art, this huge rock art, and it actually depicted two creatures, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Right. And um, this was his quote. While skirting some rocks, which uh, by their height and length inspired awe, 
we saw upon them two painted monsters, which at first made us afraid and upon which the boldest savages dare not rest their eyes. They are as large as a calf. They have horns on their heads like those of a deer, a horrible look, red eyes and a beard like a tiger's, a face somewhat like that of a man's, a body covered with scales and so long a tail uh, that it winds all around the body, passing above the head and going back between the legs, ending in a fish's tail. Red, green, uh, black are the three colors composing the picture. Moreover, these two monsters are so well painted that we cannot believe that any savage, here's that diffusionism coming in, that we cannot believe that any savage is their author for Good painters in France would find it difficult to reach that place conveniently to paint them. Here is approximately the shape of these monsters as we have faithfully recorded it. Father Jacques Marquette, uh, and it's dated 1673. Right, and that's now, without wings, yeah. right? Right. Yes. No wings are mentioned. Yeah. So that's and- that's what one one interest. I'm I'm not cutting. I, you can get back into that, but I just wanted to point this out. One interesting thing about the movie is that it is bookended by two subjects that have investigators slash researchers at odds with each other over it because you've got you've got everyone everyone conflicting over the the chicago mothman stuff and then you've got the conflicts uh between like even troy taylor and ken gerhardt are contradicting one another in their description of the piasaw yeah we need to we need to really work on getting one of those together and i'll film it i would do a pay-per-view in the ring paranormal pay-per-view uh yeah let's just let's let's have a a piasaw smackdown troy's gonna fight (laughs) dirty i guarantee guarantee (laughs) ken ken's gonna get a chair upside the back of his head i think battle the beards yeah yeah, so I, I'm really glad that that you mentioned the controversy, and I think I think um, that kind of controversy is good. <laughs> I think that people, um, you know, looking into things as deeply as they can, and then right addressing where things don't match. I mean, I think that's really really something important. But it, it's healthy to have these disagreements. I think that's going to benefit the. The field in the long run. Well, if now, we think the Piasaw bird, real quick, if we think the Piasaw bird um, as a cryptozoological phenomenon, so if you think of it as a physical creature, mm-hmm. that's what they saw, then it's not going to be a giant condor. It's not yeah. going to be a golden eagle. It's going to be something completely different. So that leads us yeah. into beyond the realm of the physical. And is it a is it a mythical? Is it a supernatural creature? Right. In fact. Um, likely what Marquette saw on the rocks um, was a depiction of what's called the underwater panther uh-huh. or in the Ojibwe, it's Mishabiju or Mishapiju. Uh, and it's not that there aren't Thunderbird petroglyphs. There certainly are, uh-huh. but the, uh, and there's a whole book written about it that I, I just picked up and I'm really excited about it. It's called Hidden Thunder. So it, it really uh, banks on that, that Thunderbird concept. Hidden Thunder, rock art of the upper Midwest. So there are a lot of Thunderbird petroglyphs all over the Midwest and, and very near um, that area um, of Alton, Illinois, you know, just over the, the border in Missouri. There's tons of, of 
petroglyphs of Thunderbirds as well. But here's the thing. You so they're they're um traversing this area by canoe and what are they going to see on the rocks? Are they going to see a warning of a big bird coming out of the sky or what's more likely? Um it's more likely that it was this underwater panther, which although the Thunderbird is generally thought to be benevolent, the malevolent creatures are creatures that come from underwater or underground. And one of those creatures is Misipiju, um, who who drowns travelers. So likely that's what they were seeing because you 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 notice the the details in Marquette's description of the fish tail. So um thunderbirds are not depicted with horns or these long winding tails or with scales, mm-hmm. but Misabiju is. Yeah. So um that's likely what it was. Now it, it does relate to the Thunderbird because uh the Thunderbird and Misapiju are uh enemies. The, the two enemies, right? It's like they're the arch enemies of um uh, at least the cosmology of uh the native people in this area that I'm familiar with. And the idea is that the Thunderbird is actually a protector of the people in most cases. I know going back to those historical accounts of eagle attacks, you know, you kind well, of maybe, wonder about maybe that. Maybe he was trying to maybe he was trying to take Marlin away from his drunken mother. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but um so the idea of the Thunderbird is that it will fight Misabiju and it will keep these monsters at bay so they don't devour humanity. Right. Cool. And and um, the idea is that you know the the lightning the the lightning that strikes the ground um, will keep these beasts uh, underneath the earth, keep them from coming up and and taking over humanity. And also um, in in the Menominee tradition, for example, the Thunderbird. <laughs> this this kind of like blows the whole feel of the movie terror in the skies because they depict the Thunderbird as this black silhouette with a heart in the middle. And the reason for that is um, the Thunderbird is thought to bring these this life-giving gifts of the, the rain and the lightning to wake up the earth, to keep the creatures down. Um, and, and there are also, this is just an aside, but in, in Japan, they're doing all kinds of studies that are finding that, that lightning strikes in an area actually cause, uh, mushrooms at least to more than double their production. So there is some validity to that. And, and a lot of times traditional stories carry science with them. So, um, the idea of the, the Thunderbird coming is that you know the thunderers come and they bring the spring, they bring life, and um, at, at my uh, former school, um, every every spring we would rededicate something called the spirit pole, which is a, a cedar pole um, that we put a tobacco tie on the top, and that's a uh, the spirit pole we go through go to throughout the year to give prayers to the spirits, but it's it's dedicated to the the Thunderbird asking for protection uh, against the, the coming spring storms. And so the, the feel around it is, is very benevolent. So I just wanted to interject that in there and that I was just shocked when, when I found things lining up that the Piasa 
bird is not a bird at all. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There's your truth bomb. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love that there. And and real just a real quick to add on, when we talk about we're talking about the terror in the skies and the thunderbird sightings and giant bird sightings, and we're talking about the Piasaw and the Water Panther. It's just over the border in Wisconsin from Illinois, in Lake Geneva, or on Geneva Lake, in Williams Bay where that was said when great storms would happen, it was the Thunderbird fighting the water panther. Hmm. And, right. you know, and so it, it was in that place. And so that's even part of when we talk about, I mean, in Lake Geneva is basically Chicago North because the whole city was developed after the rich people in the great Chicago fire lost their houses and things like that in the fire. But it just, you know, we're talking about the state of Illinois and giant birds, like it's almost inescapable anywhere Illinois touches. So do legends of giant birds. And that comes, I mean, and that's straight out of from the native population to the people who are living there today. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And and just to, just to piggyback on something Allison said about the, the, the the tone of the, like despite the name again like despite the name terror in the skies there the the idea regarding at least the thunderbird sections of the movie was never about like let's make this as creepy as possible because to me there's there's actually nothing really creepy about the idea of a giant bird i mean i mean even the you know the opening with the little boy seeing it isn't really about this kid being terrified of of a giant bird he's actually supposed to be looking at it with wonder you know and and that's kind of why the the that scene opens the movie oh good we got music starting up again i was gonna say you have your you have your own soundtrack wherever wherever you go Seth. yeah it's really wonderful Um, i you know i really i really do think that you you get that sense in the movie that sense of awe of the giant birds and i like that you know you bring lauren in and originally we're talking about what could be the you know, the physical animals that do it. And then we move into, I think, you know, the last part of it, we come into the Chicago Mothman and that's different than the Thunderbird too, because, you know, when people think about the Mothman sightings in Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the 1960s, there was always a sense of dread and a sense of terror Mm -hmm. uh, when you saw this winged humanoid with black eyes versus, you know, the Thunderbird uh, who's bringing life and and things like that. And so I kind of like how you move like, okay, this, this is what could be physical. And now we're entering a realm of a uh, dude with wings. Okay. Uh, that's not going to be, that's not going to be physical. That's not going to be a lost species. Yeah. And, and the movie really begins with the stuff that might be more supernatural with, with, um, with, with Kyle Danhausen's sighting of what looked very much like a pterodactyl. Like, so, so you go from the, the fairly easily explainable, not easily explainable, but the, the somewhat uh, ex- explainable Thunderbird sightings. Yeah. Into, into the pterodactyls and the flying humanoids and Mothman obviously falls under the flying humanoid category. So, uh, and, and we all know Allison is, is just so negative about, about, <laughs> about, about our enjoyment of the Chicago Mothman story. Um, Oh, sorry, guys. I hate to rain on the parade. Well, you know, the thing is, and we've talked about the Mothman, the Chicago Mothman a thousand times in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that the point you make in the movie, Allison, and this is what kind of excited me about it, was that um, maybe something, maybe there was a sighting of something. Maybe there was something supernatural, something remarkable. Uh, and then a lot of these reports are just disinformation I mean, coming after they're the flap. They're the they're the people who are just sending in anonymous reports and stuff like that. After that, and saying, "Oh, I saw something." Oh, don't put my name there. 
um, versus, you know, so maybe something in the beginning was an actual sighting. And now um, all these other things are there to kind of cover it up, kind of like that music is covering <laughs> up sets, you know, getting close to the truth. Oh, God. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it. I think, you know, it, I, I've been, I've been kind of railroaded uh, and depicted unfairly as some kind of dogmatic skeptic, but I, I'm really just trying to be decisive, incisive, you know, cut away the chaff and get to, you know, the real heart of something that, that, might be true. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a skeptic because extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And I've seen some extraordinary things. And so I can't say that none of this stuff isn't real. No, I I, I actually love that section of the movie. Um, for me, it's, it's probably second behind the Lawndale section um, just because of the fact that it's so much more focused on, on um, sort of a skeptical response to something which which is sorely lacking, maybe not sorely lacking, but lacking in a lot of our films. Like you don't typically have that. They just started playing another song. Um, <laughs> They're doing requests. You don't you don't typically have that like skeptical response to these phenomena in our in our films. So I I think it actually is something that we've been lacking in the films overall. So I I, I actually really appreciate that section of the movie because uh, it's so interesting to hear everyone sort of going back and forth about it. Yeah, and I I just think it's important to to do that to go back and forth about it, and then also try to clear the water a little bit. I mean, I think the water's really muddy right now, and I I just going forward, I want to see like higher standards in what we claim is investigation, so we can have a better idea of what it might be real and what is bogus. Because as investigators, we just don't have that much time to waste. Right. Well, you know, I think it's it's well done with people talking back and forth. And obviously our friend Tobias from Singular Fortean, he features in uh, and he does a great job. And Lauren comes in and he does a great job. And Allison, of course, you look beautiful in that theater. I must <laughs> say I was stunned. I was like, this is my sister. She's a movie star. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, I thought you looked great. And but also Thanks. I think everybody comes off well and I think it was edited well and put together. And it's a it's a compelling section of, okay, here's some reports. Here's what they might be. Here's what's conflicting. Here's where we need to go because this is very new. We everybody's still alive. You know, this is in 2017. This is in 2018. Um, and so, reports are online. We can check IP addresses. We can look into those kind of things. And all that kind of stuff can be done in investigation. Like research is just looking what other people did. Investigation is trying to get at the bottom of things. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a couple of different things. Like research is just we can't. Um, we can't talk to that guy in St. Charles that saved this kid in 1909 and say, can you show me the stick you used to beat the crap out of that golden eagle? Um, <laughs> you know, but we can talk to people today and find out. Um, you know, w- one thing is, I was trying to see, is it that Mothman witnesses, like modern witnesses weren't willing to get on camera with you, Seth? Um, I had one witness lined up and he pulled out um, the day we were supposed to film him. He stopped answering calls. Um so I did have I had one lined up and that one 
um, was someone that, that Lon Strickler had referred to uh, a sure. contact info from. So, so you know, and I, and I had spoken to him on the phone. He was all about it. Um, and then the day of, uh, yeah, he backed out. We lost, we actually lost two witnesses on that film where they, they backed out or, or quit answering calls. Um, there was, there was another Thunderbird witness who actually, unfortunately he would have been great because he had a sighting right around the same time Jeff Byers sighting and in the same general area. So he actually would have helped bolster uh, Byers story. But yeah, unfortunately he stopped answering calls the week of the, the filming and uh, never, never did get back with me. Well, this is why it's great to talk to you today to have this uh, behind the scenes information that kind of like after you watch the the film, this kind of completes it. But, you know, I know we're running low on time here. Is this going to be a trilogy? I had heard that, you know, you have the Mothman of Point Pleasant. Now you have Terror in the Skies. Is there a third film plan yeah i mean we're calling it the the mothman trilogy obviously terror in the skies is only tangentially sort of connected to to the mothman of point pleasant but um yeah the the mothman legacy comes out um next year um and we'll focus heavily on some of the underexplored aspects of that 66 67 flap that we didn't get into in our in our film in our first film um so well yeah it'll be much more centered on the ufo men in black activity and then um we've got some some plans regarding the wamsley family and and how they'll be represented in the film as well ashley i'm I'm friends with ashley wamsley and i actually wanted her in the mothman of point pleasant and it just never worked out she's she's going to be sort of our pov character similar to how her dad was in the first movie um we're gonna we're gonna kind of delve into the legacy of of that fam of the mothman and and how it's impacted you know her family legacy well, and I think that's awesome because, um, you know, I feel like the UFO, the men in black, the injured cold, the grinning man, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff is not as explored. And, you know, we have these winged humanoid sightings and like multiple people see that and they call the cops and there's there's the feeling of dread and then the collapse after and all that kind of stuff is dramatic from the cryptozoology perspective. Mm-hmm. But then the UFO and men in black completely changes it into a high strangeness thing and, um I really, you know, that's the kind of thing where people are like, oh yeah, people saw a flying dude. That's dumb. Yeah. Like, no, they also saw this and they also saw that and they got weird phone calls and all these kind of things that follow up that make it so much more interesting and go so much deeper. Like Marlon Lowe, um, like he was picked up by a giant bird. Like the men in black didn't come to his house and, you know, they didn't uh, neuralize him or whatever yeah. and say, you know, you you forget about that golden eagle. You never saw him. Kind of thing. They probably put a clock outside his house that played music all the time and <laughs> drove him crazy. crazy. So uh, yeah, so that that's coming up in the trilogy. And if you guys have not seen Terror in the Skies yet, um, I highly recommend it. I think it's great. Uh, obviously, since my friends are in it and my sister's in it, um, I you know hardly recommend it. Just on on that aspect, you see everybody looking great in HD and lit and stuff like that. But also, it's you know I think the graphics are cool. Um, that some of the shots are, are really incredible. And to know that obviously, Seth. So your budget is like two, three million dollars a movie, right? <laughs> no, no. This <laughs> is having said that, this is the most expensive thing we've ever done. Um, it, it went way, way, way over budget. My wife wanted to kill me by the time it was all over. But um, yeah, we we went dramatically over budget. I think I think this one's probably more at like the eighteen thousand end of things, um, which would 
yeah, like I said, it's it's probably it's it's well above what Bray Road cost, uh, and and sure. that just comes down to you know the amount of uh, like animation and CGI that that are present in the film. It just costs a boatload. It's funny because Momo, which we're working on now, is is probably the least expensive thing we've done since Boggy Creek Monster, and it's coming out the same year as as the most most expensive thing we've done. So. Well, what you can put, you know, what you can put together with eighteen thousand dollars, it's certainly you see every penny cool. on the screen. Awesome. So uh, we're gonna have links where you guys can pick that up in the show notes and watch it in the trailers and everything if you haven't yet. But um, you know, this is just this is this is the recommended listening uh, after watching that, so you get a little bit behind the scenes. Uh, Allison, any last questions for Seth? Uh, no, I just look forward to working with you again, and if I find any more weirdness, I'll be sure to send it your way. I'd love to. You know, talk to you, you know, more about um, native beliefs right. in these monsters. Cause I think, I think there's a whole nother dimension there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, this is the thing that I keep harping on in interviews. There's a reason, cause I keep getting asked about it. There's a reason we really don't go too deep into the, the native cultural beliefs regarding Thunderbirds in the movie. And that is simply because there are no natives to speak for themselves. And I really, I'd balk at having a bunch of white dudes uh, yeah, sort yeah. of speak on their behalf. Um, well, well, there are elders out there who would love to talk to Seth, so right. let's uh, reconvene on that at some later time. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much, Seth. Allison, great job in the movie. Seth, great job putting together the movie. Um, and you can find all the links to everything at othersidepodcast.com slash 252. And if you watch Terror in the Skies and want to talk to Allison directly about her part in that movie, you'll be able to find her at the American Hauntings Ghost Conference this weekend in Alton, Illinois. Uh, She'll be speaking at like 1030 in the morning on Saturday, June 22nd. Now, June 21st, you'll also be able to see the kickoff of the convention with Wendy and I. Hi, Wendy. Hey! Surprise, I'm here. (laughs) With Wendy and I, as we will be playing music, Sunspot Rock songs right from the Paranormal Podcast. See you on the other side, live at the American Hauntings Conference in Alton, Illinois. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, if you want a little more background on that, we're in the bonus episode from May 28th from what was the name of that podcast, Wendy? American Hauntings Podcast. Oh, American Hauntings Podcast. Yeah. So they got super creative with the name and the conference and everything. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we talked to Cody on there and you can listen to that episode to get a little bit more of our background mm-hmm. as musicians and uh, weirdos, I guess, right. as it were. But we're looking forward to returning. This will be, I think, our third third year this will be our fourth or third year performing with our fourth year at the conference yeah and we'll also have a booth so if you happen to be there please stop by our booth and say hello yes that's absolutely you know the thing is if you don't have a sunspot cd yet you can come to our booth and you can say hey i heard you were giving away free cds on see you on the other side and we'll have a free cd for you there it is, right there free stuff there it is there it is okay either way speaking of music we should probably get to the song of the week. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, terror in the skies, thinking about gigantic birds, thinking about beasts in the air. Uh, we want to do something a little more upbeat, a little faster, a little more hard rocking. <laughs> and so we just went with something easy. Yeah. And so this is Sunspot with Thunderbird. Thunderbird.
thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. And we can't wait to see you at American Hauntings Convention this weekend. This is our fourth year. Make sure you come up to say hi. And also make sure you come up to us and say, I want to be on your Patreon. That's right. You can sign up right there at the booth. And Mm -hmm. hopefully we'll uh, meet some of our Patreons. Yes. Our current Patreon members, which I think I know will be there. Right. And we're looking forward to hanging out in uh, in IRL. Meet space. Yes. We look forward to seeing you (laughs) in meet space. It's going to be fun, as it always is. In fact, we probably will have to have a little impromptu see you on the other side meetup. I think we shall. local watering hole. I believe the local watering hole in the hotel, <laughs> which I can't, like, I've broken glasses there. I it's lost my, ugly. I lost my phone there. One it's time we commandeered the karaoke to just sing Rocky Horror songs for like an hour and 15 minutes. Good times. Uh, either way, we like to party at American Hauntings, and most certainly we're going to be doing it this Friday and Saturday in Alton, Illinois, uh, which is a haunted yes. AF place. Anyway, speaking of our Patreon members, mm-hmm. thank you guys so much for being amazing. We kiss you. Uh, we want to thank Dr. Ned, who's a Patreon at the level where he gets a shout out in every single episode to see you on the other side. Yeah, Ned. Ned, you're my man. And just want to say thank you so you much rock. for the support because it means a lot. And to all of our Patreons and the awesome See You on the Other Side Patreon community, we think you guys are the best. And we can't wait to have a meet up, um, uh, an online meetup next week uh, as we get to the end of June. Yeah, not in Meet Space. Not in Meet Space, but in <laughs> like this one be on Skype or whatever. And let's right. we're going to talk about all the cool stuff we saw. And uh, you could ask questions to Allison directly because uh, she's going to have a really cool presentation. Um, I'm sure Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be there again, and I will bug her about the gin. Yes. I'll be like, Ro, what do you, what do you think about them gin? <laughs> uh, it's, it's just going to be a lot of fun. So please, if you guys are interested in having a conversation with us uh, and joining a really intelligent, fun group of people that meet once a month, and as we get more people, hopefully more times a month, yes. check out our Patreon at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. My day is full of listening to a clock playing music incessantly and people screaming at each other outside of my window.